Amen. Well, we're, we're going to start this morning. Um, we're going to start this morning asking a pretty big question, and uh, and it might be perhaps the biggest question. And for many people, it's really the only question that matters. And uh, the question is, where is God in the face of evil and human suffering? So Mike Fair this morning, or as our upcoming uh, Ding Delve uh, conference is putting the question, um, this is a shameless plug, but uh, they just put it as this, life hurts, God where is God? What is he doing in the face of evil and suffering? The problem is, the problem in each of our lives as we address and wrestle with this question is set both in emotional and in philosophical terms. What I mean by that is, um, Emotional terms are like what people face this weekend. Uh, I met a family who was flying back from Calgary. Uh, they sat next to me on the airplane. I was I was in Calgary this week, and um, as we got off the airplane, they said that they they were supposed to spend two more weeks on vacation in Calgary, but they were, we were rushed back because a third of their house was destroyed by the tornado. Uh, their biggest concern was their pets. That uh, that there were some holes in their house that their pets would have left. And they are very concerned about their pets. The emotional question of life hurts, where is God, is um, when you lose house, health, or house, or loved one. You're not, you're not thinking in that moment about this philosophical construction of the problem of evil. You just know that life hurts. You just know that life is hard. And you just know or have this question as far as where is God when life hurts? Where's God right now? You're, what's up? And then some of us, and when we're in that emotional dealing with this question, you know, we cry out to God, we call out to God, we yell at God. Where are you? What are you doing here? How could you let this happen? Job at one point goes, I wish God would just leave me alone. Right? Job, look at Job. He's like, why God? Why are you so concerned about me? Why do you, why do you keep on looking at me? Just leave me alone, God. That's the emotional approach to this question. And to be honest, there's no good answer to the, to, to us when we're, to you when we're going through those emotional crises. In fact, the best answer is, is often listening time and patience. Listening time and patience. Sometimes that emotional, dealing with the question of the problem of evil, where is God in the face of human suffering? Sometimes what we need is someone to listen. We need some time. We need some patience. And uh, please remember that if you maybe are dealing with friends or neighbors this weekend who are going through crisis. Sometimes the best thing you can offer is not a philosophical approach. It's it's listening time and patience. Um, but there are the there is the philosophical approach, and and it's related. And, and the reason why I bring this up today is it's related because what we need to do is we need to actually think rightly about God as far as how God has revealed Himself in Scripture, so that when we face the crises, 
we've trained ourselves to think properly about who God is and what he's doing. And so that's why we approach it at this level as well. But the philosophical approach basically, uh, it's like a, not a dilemma, but a quadlemma. The philosophical approach is basically in the face of human suffering, it's been presented in this way, God cannot be in the face of evil and suffering, God cannot be all of the above. He cannot be all, he cannot be all good at the same time as he is all loving, at the same time as that he is all powerful, at the same time that he is all present. And the, the, um, the objection to the reality of God in the face of human suffering is that God is not able to be all these things at once. And the idea is, for example, if he's all powerful, if he could stop evil, then he must not be all loving or he must not be all good. Because if he could stop evil, why doesn't he? He must not care. He must not love. He must not be good. Or, if he loves us, then he must not be powerful enough to stop the hurt. Or maybe he loves us, but he's kind of also wicked. Who knows? Or, maybe he is good and powerful, but he either does not simply care enough to stop the hurt, or he's absent. He's just not there. This is, this, this is the question that drives many people to leave the faith. Often through the emotional approach with deficient answers together. And, uh, the answer that a lot of evangelicals give today, I don't, I actually find it to be a pretty deficient answer. The answer that you'll often hear given is not the answer we're going to give today as we look through the story of Joseph. The answer that's often given within a lot of evangelical churches, uh, we, we, we generally give an, an answer that, to be honest, limits God's power. You, you, you'll hear something like this. No, no, listen, we would never say that God is not all-powerful, because that's foundational to our faith. But we might say things like, you might hear something like this, God's greatest desire is to love and be loved. And in order for God to truly be loved and and love, to be loved by and to love the creatures he's created, he grants us an autonomy of our moral choices. He grants us a complete autonomy so that we, love has to have a choice involved in it and we, we, we have to choose to love God. So God submits or he limits the working of his power and his will to preserve our freedom. This means that he cannot, in fact, he will not override the evil that occurs in our world. In other words, this kind of common evangelical answer is to let God off the hook in regards to the evil and suffering in the world because he desires human freedom over all things. I would just say this. I'm not surprised that the answer that we commonly give in our churches exalts human freedom over all things, particularly when we're in a Western culture that exalts human freedom over all things. I don't think that's a coincidence that the answer that the church has given plays right in line with the values and presuppositions of our culture. Yet I don't believe that answer is particularly biblical or helpful. I don't believe it to be biblical because I'll try to demonstrate it through the story of Joseph. 
And I don't believe it to be particularly helpful. Imagine if the answer I gave you, if that was the answer you had to cling to when your world falls apart, or a tornado runs through your neighborhood, or you're sexually assaulted, or you're accused of a crime you did not do, does it help you to be told, well, God is not going to undermine your human freedom or the human freedom of the people that have hurt, hurt you? Does that actually give you comfort in your suffering and in your sorrow? No, I, I don't believe it does. I believe that there's another answer to the problem of pain. And the answer is not that God is helpless in the face of human suffering. But listen, I believe the answer is here. That God providentially, we're going to look at that word today, that God providentially transforms human suffering to bring about our ultimate deliverance to his own glory and the magnification of his goodness power, and love. That God in his providence transforms our suffering to bring about a greater deliverance to the praise of God's glory and to the exaltation of his goodness, power, and love. And that's what we're going to see as we go through the story of Joseph. Now what do I mean by God's... I'm sorry, that was a... I, I, I missed some slides. What do I mean by in his providence? Here's what I mean by providence. Providence I define as God's meticulous care and directing of every atom and action in the universe in exhaustive knowledge of and cooperation with the nature and personality of everything and person he's made in order to bring about his intended purposes to the praise of his own glorious grace. This is the definition of providence I'm going to get from the text here in what we're looking at in the story of Joseph. When we talk about God's meticulous care, when you think of the word meticulous, that might be a new word for some of you. The word meticulous, the best way I can describe it is a bride in preparation of her wedding. You know, I, maybe I think of that because Alan and Maddie just got married this weekend, plus we've got two weddings coming up next weekend. This idea of meticulous care, of, of paying attention to every detail, Right? That, that, that everything down to the, the folds on the envelope that the invitations are sent in, everything down to the arrangement of each individual flower in the bouquet, that's what we mean by meticulous care. And so this definition of providence meaning that God is meticulously caring for, concerning himself with, and directing every atom and event of the universe Toward his ends. Now he doesn't do this in a way that um, undermines or violates or goes against his creatures that he's created. He does this, the second part of the definition says, he does this in exhaustive knowledge of and cooperation with the nature and personality of everything in person he's made in order to bring about his intended purposes. So we're going to look at that in the story of Joseph a little bit. But Hebrews 1.3, for example, talking about God's meticulous care, says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. In Colossians it says he brings everything into coherence or harmony. And the word is, doesn't have a really good English translation. Um, in Ephesians 1.1, he's talking about this unfolding plan of God, and it says that all things have been predestined according to the purpose of him 
who works all things, this meticulousness, all things according to the counsel of his will. And he does this in cooperation, in coherence with our nature and the choices that we as human beings make. For example, in Proverbs it says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so that's where we look. This is confusing to us and difficult to understand, and I believe that's why God gives us such a great illustration of this in the story of Joseph. So think back to that story of Joseph that we've read, and I'm going to pray as we as we kind of walk through this. Lord, I, I pray that you unfold this idea and understanding of your providence and how it relates to our suffering. And I pray, God, that you encourage us through your wisdom and your ways. In your name we pray. Amen. And one of the first things that I learned about God's providence when I first... I had, I had this guy, Alistair Begg. You may know him, you may not. He's a pastor from uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And he came to my Bible college, and he gave two nights. He preached two nights on one verse. And he's this Scottish gentleman. And so uh, he preached two nights on, My times are in his hands. And he said it just like that. For two nights, that's what we heard. My times are in his hands. And this great Scottish accent that he brought it out with. And he spoke on God's providence over two nights. And I remember afterwards, this caused no small controversy among our Bible college. Because this is the first time many of us had thought about God's providence. And his meticulous care and direction of every action and atom of of the universe. And so we went and we said, can we have a special meeting with you where you just answer our questions? So we went over to my friend uh, Matt's house. And we had about 40 of our university students crammed into this little room. And he said, we said, how does this doctrine of God's providence unfold in your life? And he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, God, the doctrine of God's providence is most clearly revealed in my life in my rear view mirror. In my rear view mirror. See, as I drive forward in my life, I understand that there will be consequences to every choice that I make, have consequences to every action that happens around and all the choices that other people make. As I drive forward, I realize I have responsibility to make wise choices. But as I look in my rearview mirror, I see my times are in his hands. And that he is directing meticulously every event of my life to bring me to where he wants me. And this is what Joseph sees in his life. And this is one of the biggest points of the entire Joseph story. Is that God is meticulously caring for Joseph through every event in his life. And he only sees it in his rearview mirror. For example, Genesis 39 verse 1 says, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Israelites who brought him down there. Now remember last week when we looked at Joseph, we were introduced. Joseph was the favorite son. He was he was favored by his father, and it seems that he was even through his dreams were to be understood that he is favored with God as well. But his brothers, remember, were jealous, violent men and conspired to kill him. And then Judah said, Hey guys, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. <laughs> right? That way we can get a get a profit from him. If we kill him. You know, we might as well get something out of it. So they, they throw him in a pit, and some Israel, Ish, Ishmaelite slave traders come by, and Joseph 
uh, was sold by his brothers into their hands. So he doesn't go down to Egypt as a free man. He's taken down as a slave by Ishmaelite slave traders. But by the end of the life, by the end of his life, when he looks back at this event, in his rearview mirror of his life, Joseph has learned that something has happened here, that, that he was bound by more than just the Ishmaelites' cords. He realizes later in his life, after God unfolds that plan, that Joseph was not just taken down to Egypt by his brother's wickedness and by the Ishmael's bondage, Joseph realizes that it was God himself who bound Joseph to bring him to Egypt. Joseph says to his brothers at the end of his life, looking back in the rearview mirror, Joseph says, come near to me please. They came near and he said, I'm your brother Joseph who you sold into Egypt and now don't be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there's five more years in which there'll be neither plowing or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. It wasn't you who sent me here. It was God who sent me here. That's Joseph having an over, over 13 years at this point. To reflect on his life, to reflect on what brought him to Egypt in the time and all the unfolding of the events that had occurred in his life since his brothers threw him in the pit. And, and he realized that, that God had brought him to Egypt for a purpose that he never could have seen from the beginning. Joseph didn't know that when he was sold into slavery that this episode of his life was going to fulfill God's prophecy that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign country. Joseph didn't know when Potiphar purchased him on the slave market that, it, that God would use that to rescue his brothers and indeed all of Egypt through him. But all of these events were meticulously directed by God in exhaustive knowledge of, in cooperation with the nature and personality of everything and person he made to bring about an intended purpose to the praise of his grace. Think about this. And this will blow your mind, because this is when it blew my mind. The Ishmaelites, the Ishmaelites, they planned their travels. The Ishmaelites, for their, they were wicked, wicked men. They were slave traders. And they planned their travels down to Egypt to go and make a buck. And yet their plans, the plans that they established in their hearts, led them right past the brothers where they were eating lunch after they had thrown Joseph in the pit. Their plans led them down to Egypt where they would be at that slave market where that morning Potiphar woke up. Potiphar woke up and said, I need a new servant for my house. Our, my, my, my estate has grown and I need to find another servant. And Potiphar in his wickedness as a, as a slave owner went to the market that day. And he, and he looked and he happened to pass by the tent of the Ishmaelites. And he looked and he said, well, there's a young man, 17 years old, who looks like he would be a good fit for my house. And he paid for Joseph and brought Joseph back into his house. All of those, the wicked designs of man, the wicked designs of his brothers, the wicked designs of the slave traders, the wicked designs of the slave owner, 
And yet that is what God used in order to bring Joseph down to Egypt. And in fact, the text tells us he's, uh, he goes to Potiphar's house. Potiphar, who happens to be an officer of Pharaoh, who happens to be one of the officers of the guard, so that later in the story, when Joseph uh, is falsely accused, Potiphar, being the officer of a guard, has a prison at his disposal and throws Joseph into the prison with no trial, with no due process. And Joseph remains there, but because it's the prison of the Pharaoh, that's later where the cupbearer and the cake maker come. And that's ultimately what gets Joseph out of the prison and into Pharaoh's presence. God meticulously has cared for and directed all of these things in cooperation with his creatures, the Ishmaelites and Potiphar's, their own personalities and wills in order to direct all things towards God's purposes, to his glory and to the praise of his knowledge, the praise of his goodness, the praise of his love. It blows your mind. It, It blows my mind. But we only generally appreciate God's providence after we look back on our lives and we see how his hand is led. It's a great spiritual discipline. Listen, it is a great spiritual discipline if you can train yourself in these moments, in the moments you're going through trial, it's a great spiritual discipline if you can train yourself to say, God, I can't see the end from the beginning, but God, I trust that you can. God, I actually trust that even though my world is falling apart right now, I trust that you are meticulously working with care and with concern to direct all things toward an end that will serve to praise you in your goodness and your love and your glory. See, that's where the theological approach to this problem meets the emotional approach to this problem. Because there will come a time in your life where you're at the end of yourself, at the end of your resources, at the end of your rope. And the answer is not, oh, well, God uh, loves me enough and humanity enough to just let us go to our own devices. No, the only hope you have in that moment is, God, I believe you. And I believe you are working to make good out of this evil. That's the theme of the book of Genesis. You get down to the last two chapters, twice it says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And it, it changes your outlook. It changes your your whole mind. But that is not to say it doesn't hurt while you're going through it. It hurts. Listen, it hurts. Joseph, when he's down in the pit, we get this we get this recollection of Joseph later by his brothers who are scared that Joseph's gonna kill them, have them killed. He says they say they said to one another, In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when we begged when he begged us and we didn't listen. While the brothers were eating lunch after they had thrown Joseph in the pit, he was weeping and crying and begging them, let me go. And so do not take this message on God's providence and how it helps us in our suffering to think that I am saying to you that there will be no anguish of soul if you understand God's providence. There will still be anguish of soul because the world hurts, because suffering is real, because sorrow is a real thing. But we have a hope and we serve a God who is greater than our sorrow. So it's a great spiritual discipline 
to in the midst of our twistings and turnings of our life to remind ourselves that there's a God who is meticulously caring for and directing all things for our good. For the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose. To the praise of his glory and to his grace. Second thing I want us to think about in God's providence is that God's providence guides our lives through a sense and descents. Through the, through the lifting up and the tearing down. Through, as the song we sang, through the giving and through the taking away. You give and take away, you give and take away, you give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through the ascents and through the descents, God's providence guides our lives. Uh, so this this whole chapter is, these two chapters are Joseph and his descent from being the favored son to the forgotten prisoner, right? By the end of the chapter, he's the forgotten prisoner. He started out as the favored son. He's now the forgotten prisoner. Yet, I don't want you to think that through this is all just a descent. Because there's points of elation. There's points of elevation as Joseph goes through our life. And guess what? That's the story of all of our lives. That there's a sense and there's descents. And the gospel, the, the surprise of the gospel is that it's often through the descents that we are ascending. Right? There's a Puritan prayer book called The Valley of Vision. And it's saying, in order to see higher, I must go lower. It's this idea that the vision is the, the valley is the place of vision. That when you're in the valley is when you can see what God is doing at times. But I want you to uh, get ahead of ourselves here. Look at, look at uh, what, how the chapter speaks of the Lord's presence with Joseph. In Genesis 39, verse 2. Like, all through this passage, the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man as a slave in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him. The Lord caused all he did to succeed. Joseph found favor in the sight of his master and attended his master. And the master made him overseer of the house and put him in charge of all he had. And from the time that he made him overseer of the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph, excuse me, for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge because of him. He had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Similarly, after Joseph is, is thrown in prison, again, the chapter ends with the same thing. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. The Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Like, Joseph is a slave and a prisoner, and yet God is with him, and God is blessing him, and God is elevating him, even in his descent. It's amazing. God is elevating him even in his descent. And now concerning Joseph's case, we see in this chapter God works out a particular promise made to Abraham, Joseph's ancestor. And we've seen play out the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Joseph. And remember, Abraham had a promise given to him by God that he would both be a blessing, or be blessed and be a blessing to the nations around him. And so we see that happening in Joseph's life here, even as he's a slave in Potiphar, the Egyptian's household. He's both blessed and he's a blessing. As he's a prisoner in the prison, he's both blessed and he's a blessing. And it's one of the most confusing things about this chapter. This idea that God can be blessing even in what looks like cursing, that he can, he can, he can raise us up even in this descent down. 
And this leads us into the heart of the mystery of God's providence. That the events and episodes in our lives can both at the same time be interpreted as ascents and descents, depending on our perspective. That's what Joseph is getting at when he says, what you meant for evil, God, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So there's a truth and a reality here that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. There's a truth and a reality here that God sent him before his brothers to preserve them. Nowhere is this truth brought out, this idea of in God's providential plan, he can both take the ascents and descents and make them in the same act, activity. Nowhere is this truth brought out as clearly as, as the death of Jesus Christ himself. The account of the death of Jesus Christ is on the one hand the most sinful action ever undertaken by humanity. That the creator of the universe should visit his creation should take on our form, should walk among us and show us what the character of God is like, that he would love the outcast and the sinner, that he would show grace and mercy, that he would teach the wisdom of God, that he would join us in our sufferings, this God with us, and yet we reject him, and yet we mock him, and yet we spit on him, and yet we crucify him, and yet we torture him. We took the Son of God and trampled him under our feet. We took the Son of God and we, we pushed him to his death. The most shocking and evil act humanity has ever accomplished, and yet in that desecration, and yet in that mockery, and yet in that torture, and yet in that death, we call it Good Friday. We call it Good Friday. When the apostles preached, God has accomplished through your wickedness all that he predestined to do concerning his son. That, that from your wickedness, God has brought good from your slander, God has brought salvation. From your hatred, God has brought healing. And that the cross of Jesus Christ, we still wear it around our necks today because it does not only mean, it does not only stand for the pinnacle of humanity's defeat, it stands as our victory. That God has triumphed over the grave. That God has purchased salvation by his blood that we drained from his body. And so that's part of God's providence. And when we, when we marvel before him and we understand that all that happens in our life, even though it looks like we're going into the valley, it may be that there is where God is exalting to the highest mountain. It's amazing. It's amazing. If you don't know this God here today, I tell you, you need to know him. He loves you. He has done everything. Even though you, like me, may have rejected him, rebelled against him, you want nothing to do with him. 
We did not, as humanity, all of us like sheep, had gone astray, each of us to our own way, yet he came to seek and to save us, to demonstrate his love for us. So if you're here today, I implore you and I plead with you, I pray that God will give you faith to trust in him and walk after him in his ways. He's a great Savior. And when you're coming to your life, you might not hear. Right now, my words might be falling on deaf ears. But there will come a point in your life where you hit your rock bottom. And I pray that in those moments, this message will resound within you to remember that there is a God who is working in the hardships, in the sorrows, in the suffering, in the difficulty of life. A God who has joined me through Jesus Christ in the sorrows and the hardships and the sins and the difficulty of life. And he has elevated through his resurrection. He has offered and achieved victory. And I pray in those moments you will turn and cry out to God your Savior. And finally, I pray you do it today, to be honest. I pray you do it today. And finally, Christian, we must not use God's providence as an excuse for our sloth and our sin. Like there's an element that runs through these two chapters that I would I would um, be remiss if I didn't, didn't point out. In these chapters, there's a focus on the exemplary character and diligence of Joseph, even as he's facing these these crazy trials, thrown into slavery, thrown into prison, falsely accused, and yet. Joseph is found trustworthy. And I know we're not supposed to just like read these Bible stories and elevate the characters of the Bible because they're sinful people just like us. But I believe Moses, the author of this chapter, is actually highlighting that in the midst of all this that is going on, Joseph remains a man of integrity. In 39 verse 3, his master saw the Lord was with him and caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. There's this idea here and it's subtle because the focus is on God's blessing and presence with Joseph, but there is a reality here that Joseph is working hard for Pharaoh in Pharaoh's house. That the Lord is the Lord is in blessing and inspiring all the work of Joseph's hand. How many of us? How many of us would work hard when we're thrown into slavery? I, I don't know. Sometimes I can't even when I was in the university, I couldn't even get myself to work hard on the paper that I was signed. And I was paying to be there. But there's this diligence. God's providence is not an excuse to slot. The idea that we just sit back and go, well, God, you've ordained all things, so I just sit and do nothing. That doesn't seem to be how Joseph is operating in his text. God's providence is not an excuse for sin. It's highlighted again and again, day after day, it says, Joseph was being propositioned by his master's wife. And yet Joseph withstood her advances and and many of us, if we were in Joseph's situation, yes, many of us would become bitter at God, would become angry at God. And Joseph preserves the glory and the holiness of God. He says to her, look, it's not just that. My master, your husband, has given me everything in this household. It's not just that my master, your husband, has not withheld anything from me except for you because you're his wife. It's not just that, it's that it's this. How could I do such a great sin against my God? See, many of us, we would say, oh, God, you threw me into prison. God, you threw me into slavery. Why would you, God, do such a great sin against me? We would. And yet, Joseph is 
not allowing God's providence to become an excuse for slothfulness or sin. When he's falsely accused and he's thrown into prison, and many would become bitter at God again for ruining my life. He again turns and says whatever he did, whatever was done in prison, he was the one who did it. And so God's problem is not an excuse to slaw. And even when the, when, the, when the prisoners come in, they tell him his dreams. Joseph testifies of God's goodness again. He says, Isn't, aren't interpretations of them belong to God? Here, let me help you. He never uses God's providence as an excuse to slothfulness and sin. He testified and trusted in the, in the Lord, even as his life descended from favored sons forgotten prisoners. And that's where the chapter ends, with Joseph at his lowest point, forgotten, toiling away years of his life in prison. And yet we also know at the same time God's working behind the scenes through his loving, careful providence, setting in motion the plan that would not only deliver Joseph from prison, but also through him save his brothers and all of the world. Our lives are filled with sorrow, trials, tribulations, twists, and turns. Yet a mature understanding of God's providence trains us that we might, as the Heidelberg Confession teaches, be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Tell you this quick story, and I'll be done, because some people will remember the stories more than anything I just said. Um, but I gave this story at a Chinese New Year three years ago. It was the year before, since some of you guys remember it. But I think it, it's, it's, it's such a good example of a, of, of, a, of a life that trusts in a providence, but we can go deeper and beyond the story. There's a Chinese story of the man with the horse. There once was an old man who owned a fine horse, and one day the horse ran away. All the man's neighbors came by to console him. You must be so upset. We'll see, said the man. How do you know this is not a blessing? The next day the horse came back, but now with 20 other wild horses. And all the man's neighbors came by to celebrate with him. You must be so happy to have all these horses. We'll see, said the old man. How do you know this is a blessing? The next day, one of the wild horses kicked his son and broke the son's leg. And all the man's neighbors came to console the man. We're sorry about your son's leg. How terrible. We'll see, said the old man. And the next day, the country went to war and all the able-bodied young men were drafted. The man's son, however, was not drafted. To go to war, and all the man's neighbor came to rejoice with the man that his son was spared, and the man just said, We'll see. Obviously, the moral of that story is that since we can't know the future, we can't tell if the good fortune we experience now will last. However, this doesn't mean that we're just accepting of good and evil. It's not that this is not that's kind of like that story. You can a Buddhist could tell that story, right? That's the issue that Buddhists do tell that story. But the thing is, the Christian faith actually directs us to more than that. To more than that. There is 
a detachment in a sense of we'll see and not, not holding on to the trials or tribulations or triumphs of our life. And there is something more than that. Because the Bible tells us a different story of a man who had no horse. Near the end of the life, this man named Jesus was coming toward a city, Jerusalem, a city over which he was rightful king. Jesus had taught the people that God had sent him to show them a new way. He taught them that their lives weren't just filled with endless ups and downs, but if they were to, if they were to seek God first, God would bring them into his kingdom of everlasting peace. But as he approached the city, he had no horse to ride on. But God said, we'll see. And so instead of a horse to ride on, Jesus the King, God's Son himself, rode into Jerusalem on a lowly dog of donkey. The crowds of people cheered him on, yet the leaders of the people were offended by this display, and over the next week, they turned the crowd against Jesus, and on Friday, they killed him. But God said, we'll see. And on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead, proving to all that he indeed was God's son and was able to forgive sins and give people new life. But after 40 days, God took him away into heaven, and his followers were so scared that he had left them. But God said, we'll see. And soon after, God sent his Holy Spirit to live in all who had followed Jesus. These new Christians were filled with boldness and power. They proclaimed that everyone who turns from their sin believes in Jesus can have new life. God used them to change the world, and for nearly 2,000 years, the message of Jesus has gone into all the world to people of nearly every time and tribe, nation, and race. This story of Jesus, the king without a horse, changing lives, forgetting sins, and giving hope to the world. Yet in this world, we Christians, followers of Jesus, still face many, many trials. But God says, we'll see. And then here's the difference. The Bible tells us the end of the story. The Bible says that someday Jesus will come back for those who waited on him. The last picture of Jesus in the Bible is of a rider on a strong white horse with the armies of heaven following in white horses and that the king who had no horse will return to this planet and set up his kingdom that will have no end.